Welcome to another episode of Breaching Extinction. Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audibletrial.com slash breachingextinction and browse the unmatched selection of audio programs. Download a title free and start listening. It's that easy. Go to audibletrial.com slash breachingextinction. In this episode, we talk to Dr. Gay Bradshaw, an ecologist and psychologist who studies trauma in non-human animals, the author of Elephants on the Edge and Carnivore Minds, and the director of the Carolos Center, which focuses on translating our understanding of non-human animals into the practices of nonviolence. Erica? Hi, Gay. How are you? Hi. Sorry, it took me so long. <laughs> no worries. I, technological difficulties, and I, you know, you work with animals, so I understand they don't always work on human time. So no worries. How are you doing? Yeah. I, have you ever seen the movie Late Night? I have not. Oh, you have to. How old are you? I'm 23. Okay, you have to watch it. Yeah. <laughs> my my board president. Well, I mean, it's probably not to me. My board president said. You have to watch this. This is your assignment. It's about Emma Thompson. And anyways, it's the, it's the culture age gap in terms of technology. <laughs> so, nice. And it's really fun. So it's not because I work with animals. It's because as, as Emma Thompson says, I'm too old and I'm too white. <laughs> uh, that's funny. Yeah. Anyway, nice enough. to meet you. Thank you so much. Thanks for being so yeah. patient. Yeah, I really appreciate you talking to me. I'm you do not even understand how excited I am to talk to you. I was reading The Breath of a Whale and um in Leah Calvis's book, she mentioned something about you and studying PTSD in animals and I went to school for environmental studies and psychology and I had I hadn't heard of you and then I saw that and I like looked you up and looked up your work and I just like oh my gosh, I just I can't wait to pick your brain. I have so many questions. Um oh, but, go yeah. ahead, go ahead. Awesome. Um, so, is everything okay audio wise? Is that okay? Yeah, it should. Yeah, it's fine. Um, it records on both sides and then it combines the file later. Um, but yeah, this is like the best audio app or supposed to be, anyways. Um, but yeah, so do you mind telling us a little bit about your story and how you got involved with this kind of work? Uh, specifically, PTSD. Um, just like yeah, PTSD and uh, work with animals. This podcast focuses on the Southern residents, but I think that it's important to understand, you know, all animals as well. That just helps us with our understanding in general. So, you know, I'm happy to hear about any of your experiences. Okay, great. Um, I, I didn't, I'll I'll put it this way. I never really was conscious of animal, non-animal, you know, human, non-human until I really began what we would call this socialization. So that would be when I started grammar school and, and after that. Uh, my world when I grew up was very much integrated with uh, non-human animals, and they were very much part of my life, and I was part of their life in a very, very intimate and integrated way. <clears throat> and so anyways, as I, as I kind of progressed through time, I, you know, we studied and I got caught up in human things and things like that. And then eventually at one point, I'm giving you the short story here. At yes. one point, um, I was working. Uh, I was working as a as a research mathematician for the government, working in environmental issues and all. And it really struck me that all of these fancy things that I was, you know, supposed to do was not giving any kind of inroads. The questions that were being asked that were wrong because the the, the problem and the topic of the environment wasn't the issue; it was humans. So I ended up I ended up going into getting a second degree in psychology, depth psychology, and it was not an explicit, but but it was in my mind about really trying to find collective language um, to express what I had experienced personally growing up with animals and how I saw the world. And in a collective sense, uh, my background, you know, included science. And so that's how I really got involved in, in professionally, professionally involved in the study of animal minds and experience. Wow. That's really awesome. I, I completely agree with what you're saying. Our environmental issues are not human. I've, you know, been toying with a lot of ideas and I think that our 
you know, our issues are social, but they manifest ecologically. Um, so I yeah. think that that's a really good point. Um, can you tell me a little bit about your experience studying the Southern residents? Um, in your book, Carnivore Minds, I just, I haven't finished it completely yet, but I'm almost there. And, um, you talk about morals and vulnerability in orcas, and that's just such an interesting concept. Um, can you tell me a little bit about how you studied them and how you came to your conclusions? I have to say that I really have never studied uh, an animal or a species. When I wrote Carnivore Minds, very much like the elephant book, it wasn't my firsthand experience with those species. What I basically have done in the, that work is take what is basically very con conservative science, but not applied to wildlife. Then uh, that is neuro the neurosciences and psychology. So psychology, this is getting back a little bit to the, your first question, is that psychology generally has been reserved for humans. In fact, it was developed for humans. And mm -hmm. ethology behavior was the field that was used for animals. Now, where these um, lines got crossed really is pronounced in biomedical research and biomedical science and also also in, in animal behavior where non-humans have been used as surrogates for humans. And in the biomedical industry and research, the animals, you name it. I mean, there's horseshoe crabs, there's rats, there's cats, any kind of species you can imagine. And, and they use them as neuropsychological surrogates for the human to understand human bodies and minds. Interestingly enough, the same animals that are studied in that context, when they're studied by uh, outside of the uh, neurosciences, they are looked at and studied through the lens of ethology and animal behavior. So one is a kind of a subjective type of thing that psychology really is a subjective, it, it appreciates mm -hmm. a subjective experience. And ethology and animal behavior really is an objectifying approach. These are gross terms, but essentially those right. are the true traditions. So for me, when I approached these different subjects, beginning with the elephants, is that I really looked through the lens of neuropsychology and said, okay, well, what is it saying? And, and in those fields, in the fields of <clears throat> neuroscience and neuropsychology, they are using the, the researchers are using a single model of brain, mind, behavior, and consciousness to look at orangutans and humans and cats and dogs and mice and everything. But when it comes out to talking about it, they talk about two separate models, that humans are less than, I mean, animals are less than humans. So they're right. linguistically first in that way. So when mm -hmm. I approached orcas, um, you know, and I looked at, I was particularly interested in, in really communicating the experience of these individuals, and in particular, like a culture that we might look at, you know. And so I looked at through science saying, okay, well, what would science predict? I didn't do it in that kind of formal way, but in that sense, looking at it through, through that lens rather than from an ethological or animal behavior type of thing. And that's how I approached the, 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 um, the Southern Residents. And uh, I looked at individuals, and I spoke to people who were very closely, as well as in the literature, and kind of wove a story of, of the experiences that were going on. And then that was vetted with the individuals, of course, that's vetted in terms of the neuropsychology. So when I was talking about the morals and the culture, you know, there's one thing that comes out that's one of these kind of factoids, <laughs> which is mm -hmm. remarkable at, from one point of view and, and about orcas in general that there has been no attacks on humans. No human has been harmed, aside from those in captivity. Now, there was one incident recently, and that was sort of iffy about really what was going on. But that's extraordinary. And so I looked at it from the perspective of just phenomenologically, you know, not is that obviously within orca culture, and other scientists have talked about whale culture. I mean, these things are really not... <laughs> They're not really new, nor are they um, cutting edge. They're very basic. The only reason why we have a problem in talking about psyche and culture with non-humans is because of the implications. So I just want to put that caveat in. So when you look at it, you go, wow, for some reason, they can, but they don't. They've never harmed a human. Mm -hmm. So that speaks of a certain kind of a, a rule structure, right? Mm -hmm. A certain kind of an ethic, right, which is a kind of a way of... of molding our behavior and our actions and thoughts and speech. 
Mm-hmm. And so that was really what came out from the orcas. And then looking at them in terms of their intra-cultural, intra-community dynamics, how they have very distinct cultures, how they're very insular in a certain way, and, and they have, you know, distinct dialects. And so that perspective really falls out like you would in any kind of anthropological study. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, I definitely, that's very interesting. I, a, a thing that keeps coming up in this study is, or not in this study, but in this podcast is we keep asking, like, how are humans different from animals? And the conclusion that I've come to is I feel that we have an ego, um, but I'm very curious to see what your take is on that and, like, what makes us different from other animals? Because it seems that we have, you know, some of those same intrinsic things like culture, problem solving, intelligence, um, I'm, it sounds, and now you're saying that you, you know, animals have morals as well. So do you think that there is anything that really differentiates us from other species other than just like the way that we move through life and our perception? Well, first, you know, the, the term human, when we use it, it usually is re- making reference to a very, very small population, a blip in time. And that mm-hmm. is what is characterized by our dominant culture however you want to call it. We'll just call it the dominant culture. But when you look at the, the way that, and in fact, anthropologists have looked in the record <clears throat> and they've come up with saying, you know, the, the dominant culture right now, which has been represented over a very short period of time, centuries or whatever, um, is aberrant. It's 1% of the entire record relative to the kinds of uh, values and, and morals and ethics and culture, et cetera. So when we say human, we're talking about, in this particular context, I'm talking about a very, very specific blip in time. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I don't think there is anything different. The reason I say that is I think that from my own experience, and I'll say that, I, I, from my own experience, um, I don't, I'm not any different than my cat, <clears throat> than my rabbits, than the tortoises with whom I live, the deer, the turkeys. When I drop my lens, when I drop this perception, as you refer to it, when I become embodied and I'm present with them, I don't feel different. I, or I put it this way, I feel more and more similar. Mm. So really get down at the very deep levels of awareness. And this is where you get into the grounds of quote unquote spirituality. Mm-hmm. No, I don't think any difference. I think the difference is because we think we're different, we see that we're different, and then that gets perpetuated over time. And of course, maybe at some point, you know, if you want to use the science model of genetically, we've become very different. Maybe that's true. Mm-hmm. I certainly think that, that some people, you know, have a real wall about um, even accepting the science which is out there. So, for example, the carnivore minds. It was very popular in the sense that people said it was very re- well researched and they loved the writing. But practically every review said, but, you know, this is kind of speculative. And it is not speculative. I didn't make any of this up. My inference is very rigorous, and it is based in very fundamental neurosciences. You you can't argue with it. I mean, you can argue with science. But right. within the context of very rigorous science, it 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 all it is is just, like I said, all I did was open my mouth and put the pieces together. Yeah. Well, I don't think... I don't think we are. I think that it's very easy. I think, for example, we can each get a flavor of the sameness when, for example, we have a very deep emotion, mm-hmm. whether you know, like, for example, there was a YouTube or something of a, of a man meeting a, a gorilla mm-hmm. and it was this incredible experience or you see an el- someone is touched by an elephant trunk and you experience this awe. Mm-hmm. That right there. That right there, to me, is the data of that we're all the same. I mean, we're, we're in different, we're, we're wearing different costumes. Today's Halloween, <laughs> so that's <Yeah>. appropriate. <laughs> so we're wearing different costumes. And, and certainly that, you know, informs something differently. Like I walk on two feet and I'm not walking on four feet. Mm-hmm. And of course, I see what differently. But at an essential fundamental level, we're the same. I definitely agree with you. And the more time I spend with different species, I continue to come to that conclusion. And I think it's, you know, I, I think our ego plays a huge role in it. For some reason, we, I think humans feel the need to be better than other animals or, you know, feel on top for some reason. And I think that, you know, when we are unwilling to 
accept the idea that maybe these guys are just as similar to us as, you know, very similar to us, then we stifle our creativity and our, our knowledge of understanding. So I really like that you're pushing the boundaries and you do it in, yes, in like a very like sound way. This is sound science. Um, I was wondering what your thoughts are about aversions in biological studies and behavioral studies to anthropomorphizing animals. Well, I don't think, I think the, the term anthropomorphizing is either passe or it's been subsumed in what I call bidirectional inference. And the, I made up that term just because I wanted something to describe. Bidirectional inference is what I know about you and what you know and, and what I can know, apply about you to me is the same. Mm -hmm. That's the very model of brain, mind, behavior, and consciousness. So in other words, in, in science, it's uh, a routine. It's, a, it's a, a, a model which is very well accepted to study a rat. Mm -hmm. the, the neuropsychology, the psychology, the psychiatry, the psychopathology of a rat, <clears throat> and apply that to humans. They wouldn't get billions of dollars for these experiments if that wasn't the inference. At the same mm -hmm. time, though, at the same time, it's implicitly making inference from humans to rats. So that's the bidirectional part which has been denied. And the only reason it's denied is because of social, psychological, economic, and political reasons. Mm -hmm. meaning is all I'm doing is making assumptions about um, a non-human um, that I can relate to. And it's no more vulnerable than me making a kind of an assumption about you, which we do all the time. I, I, I'm making right now, I'm, I'm unconsciously, you and I are making assumptions, a.k.a. kinds of projections in that sense. And we do what they call, I think it was Gordon Burkhart um, who coined the phrase critical anthropomorphism. And also that's essentially it. In other words, when I'm having a conversation with you or someone else, you know, I, I have to be aware of my own projections, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I can't, I, because if, then I'm not really listening to you, right? I'm not really seeing you if I'm constantly having this lens. So the same thing goes with other species. And most of the time, uh, the problem comes in is that we don't listen enough. Humans don't listen. When we see another animal, we're watching. You know, it's a kind of a predatory thing. And if you listen, which means quieting inside, you call it the ego, Mm -hmm. Making the putting the ego on vacation for a while, just listening, and then see what you what do you quote unquote hear hear with your eyes, hear with your ears, hear with your body, and there'll be some things that are different. So if Absolutely. I'm really listening to you, if I'm really really listening to you, that's the same type of exercise. Or I'm letting you tell me who you are, not necessarily in explicit words, but just tell me. By you know being who you are, <clears throat> then there's less of a chance that I'm going to be quote unquote projecting something on you and in inaccurately making an assumption about you. So anthropomorphizing is a, is a passe term. It's a stupid term. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, you know you mentioned something about spirituality and the role that that plays. I've you know I love to explore a variety of perspectives, and I think that you know when we all come together, if you look at it from a bunch of different angles, you get the best answer. And um, I was wondering if you have an opinion on maybe the role of mindfulness, or do you think that mindfulness is something that if we practice it can help us better understand animals? And maybe what role does that play in solving our environmental problems? That Maybe you don't have an answer to that question, but I just thought I'd ask. Well, let me, let me put in my words what I think mindfulness is. Mindfulness is a, a practice uh, that is to become aware of one's state, uh, which is one's thoughts, one's body, and not to get caught up. I mean, it's kind of a funny term. In one way, it should be mindlessness <laughs> yeah. because it, it's trying to, at least in my understanding and my own practice, is it's trying to bring ourselves back into our body and the present and being aware, for example, of that, I'm getting caught up in my mind and, and the and the gone with the wind story in my mind <laughs> instead of reality, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. So yes, I do think it is. I think if we become embodied, become aware and are present, you know, keeping the thinking thing shut down for a while or the storyline in the thinking, then 
know, all we've got is each other. We don't have all these storylines that really have nothing to do with the present. So, yes, definitely, definitely. And I think it, it brings us closer to reality. Yeah, absolutely. Nature. I call it nature reality because that's how nature works. You know, when you're when I take a walk outside and, and I'm, you know, seeing the deer and the turkeys in our neighborhood here, uh, they're. I mean, they're. I mean, I'm, I'm making this is a supposition, but I can tell in terms of a sense, and I think that's really important. We've yeah. lost. A, this is a little bit of a hypertext here, <laughs> but <laughs> our, our education system in this dominant society has really disempowered uh, the individual in terms of feeling competence and competence and their ability to, to know what's going on. And I mean, in the sense of being present. Yeah. We're, we're often taught how to think. We're told how to think. We're told what is this, what is that. But we're really, we've lost our natural abilities to, to understand what the raven is saying. And, and a lot of the indigenous people, you know, that's why... And I think our culture has a hard time translating, for example, uh, an American Indian culture when they talk about the raven says or the whale says, you know, that doesn't make sense in our culture. So we, it tends to get kind of badly translated, I think. But in my yeah. mind, that's my experience. My experience is the raven is talking to me just as much as he's talking to the blue jay or the deer or whatever. Yeah, I um, definitely, I agree with that. Um, I've kind of come up with this idea in my head of something called a manufactured lifestyle, which to me, what that means is this, you know, essentially our culture has cultivated um, this idea that you need to be fed like certain ideas and certain products in order to um, maintain yourself and be happy in a certain society. And I think what you're saying about how our education system has kind of failed us is uh, I think that plays into it because, you know, we, we do lack that ability to think critically and we don't encourage that we don't foster that and i think that that directly plays a role in science and policy and the way that we view animals um we definitely need to get back to our roots um what would you recommend for you know young people that want to think critically or i don't know want to learn more have something more enriching than their traditional public school experience well First of all, I would I would ask them to reflect on why they want to do it. Uh, it you know, we 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 need to decenter. We're not the center of the world. You know, right. I mean, Galileo proved that in Copernicus. I mean, we're just not the center of the world, and yet that's how our culture has shaped things. So, to me, it's really important to start out saying why. Do you want to do something that's outside of what you described as conventional education? Um, and I would hope that that would be that, you know, that they would understand that they would feel healthier and they would be able to live, support the health of, of the rest of nature. Um, and I would say even commit their lives to supporting nature because nature supports us. There's a reciprocity. Um, mm -hmm. I just finished. He'll be out in the spring. Um, I worked for nine years with Charlie Russell, who was from Alberta. A lot mm -hmm. of people know him. Beautiful man. And he worked with brown bears and grizzly bears for many, many, many years. And he, this book is about him. I mean, it's called Talking Bears, Conversations with Charlie Russell. And it's essentially, mm -hmm. really, he's written several books before, but this is a way of trying to showcase his principles and philosophy, which I think overlap with a lot of indigenous cultures. And when I say indigenous cultures, I'm talking about orcas mm -hmm. and bears and um, other species. And that is living as part of nature, which we are. So Absolutely. Yeah, we definitely have a disconnect. And I think um, ex accessibility to environmental education is something we really lack. Um, and I'm hoping that through this podcast and, you know, through things like the books that you've written and whatnot, we can make it a little bit more accessible to everyone. But we definitely need to get back to our roots and find ways to connect. And I think, you know, if people take a moment and just sit outside and notice what's going on around them, we can get a lot further. There's a lot to learn from that. Um, but I think, you know, and I just keep having this reoccurring theme of the ego go through my head. I think that we somehow, you know, we feel better than nature. That's why we separate ourselves. 
And I think that, you know, right now taking, you know, we've talked a lot about taking down the dams because that's what's directly affecting the orcas, but, um, we need to treat the root of our, um, social issues that are leading to the environmental symptoms. Um, what other root issues do you think that we have in our culture, um, that we can address in order to better maintain a healthy environment? Well, I'll make a comment when you said to take down the dams. That's mm-hmm. given literal. We have to mm-hmm. take the dam, internal dams down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, yeah, the, that's, the, most, that's the most critical. And, and I think the, the difficulty with that is awareness, one, that there mm-hmm. is, that we, what do you call it, manufactured. I, the way I look at it is like our reality is living in a house, and then we try to orchestrate Staying in the house, <laughs> uh, what's going on on the outside, quote unquote, nature. Uh, I think that the internal walls have to dissolve and, and perceptual walls. And that creates a vulnerability. And it's an unfamiliar feeling for many people. Mm-hmm. And I think it's in some, some of the spiritual practices, the traditions where that process, for example, in, in, in a number of the quote-unquote non-dual uh, traditions, such as Buddhism and mystic Christianity, um, indigenous peoples, this non-dual, there is this porosity and there is this natural sense of vulnerability. It's a decentering, you know, from, from the ego. I, I've been wondering, you know, I don't, I'm not sure. I think these ideas of ego and things, I don't, I don't think animals have them. I, I just don't. I think they start to. That's what I, like yeah, semi- that's what I've been saying. This is a semi-hypothesis. Different. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that, for example, there are individuals, um, I think I'm kind of going off topic here, but I'll try to weave it back in, is that there are individuals, because I studied trauma in, in, in animals and all was, or observing it, is that it's amazing how so many, this is not just my experience, but talking with others and observing it, is that how easily and readily do non-human animals when they come from a biomedical situation experience terrible torture and they come from a zoo terrible torture and they are they're able to live in an environment which is at least some semblance of their natural life and they are not being threatened um every day that they quote unquote come alive again a lot of the symptoms are there i mean there's this like for example Carol buckley an amazing person who's worked with elephants many, 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 many years. And she established this sanctuary. And she always talked about how, even though there was like hundreds of acres, that sometimes some of the elephants who would come up against a fence would start to bob and sway, this stereotypy, which is what they had when they were in the circus or the zoo. So these are still in there. But at the same time, able these animals are able to, um, you know, somehow connect again with this deep, you know, nourishment of, of the earth and themselves. Now there are, that being said, there are individuals um, that I've known, for example, parrots um, and elephants, you know, and, and certainly orcas, you know, certainly mm-hmm. orcas, but they are, um, they're just, they're so humanized. In other words, they've just, they've been subjected to so much torture uh, in the sense of being taken from their mothers, taken from their families, being, you know, violated in so many profound ways, as the orcas have been, and that they kind of, quote unquote, go over the edge as such, yeah. which is kind of my my discussion about Tilikum. And, and that way is that that's kind of a madness in the sense of, I think I said I quoted um, I quoted a poem of something, you know, the, the, the plank of reason breaks inside. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I think that really we just need to feel natural again and decenter. I think one of the most important things, exercises for me that I've developed for myself, mm-hmm. decenter for myself, get out of my mind, get out of my storyline, and be present. Absolutely. And that's like, that's like when I say be present, it means I'm present, listening, and caring about everyone that's around me, everyone that's around me. And I'm not so important. It's, it's really not privileging myself. I mean, it's not self-immolation, but it's really mm-hmm. deprivating myself, saying everyone around me is more important than me. 
Right. And a little exercise when I get caught up in my mind <laughs> that I try yeah. to do, you know, is, is kind of like get real. You know, what's this deer, what, what's going on with her? You know, in a yeah. listening mode. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I think that will definitely, <laughs> if more people can adapt that sort of um, mentality, then we can solve a lot of our problems. But I think, you know, you're right. We got to take the dams down and we have to start with ourselves like, as individuals and, you know, hold ourselves accountable for, you know, clinging to these storylines or clinging to these ideas that we were fed and, you know, sticking to it. our biggest failure, I think, is our unwillingness to adapt and our unwillingness to see where we have failed. And I think that is one of our things, our way of thinking when we just continue to you know, consume thoughts and products that destroy our environment. We just continue the cycle. And, you know, I think one of the other things that makes humans human, I feel like I'm going off a little bit, but I'll bring it back, is, you know, our ability to destroy ourselves. And I think that's, you know, due to our lack of adaptability. And I think that we can combat that with, you know, what you're saying, where we sit there and we recenter and we think about what's going on around us. And we're present in the moment with, you know, whoever we're with, whether that be someone with two, you know, legs or no legs or four legs, whoever it is. Um, but you're absolutely right. Um, I did want to ask you a little bit about um, what you've seen in the trauma of animals um, and what you've learned from that and maybe what people, people who are experiencing trauma, what they can learn from that as well. Well, I wanted to just add um, from, from what you said is that to be less afraid of being afraid. <laughs> yes. Oh my uh, gosh. Yes. I'm so glad I'm talking to you. You like, you understand. I've been like thinking for like the last three days, just like all of these different thoughts and you have found a way to put them out into the world. And like, yes, I, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. I just got really well, excited. No, I mean, it's a very critical thing because I, you know, again, what I'm saying is, is nothing unique to me. I, it, you know, great traditions and writers and, thinkers and the animals themselves, <laughs> you know, it's, it's not, it's being less afraid of being afraid. Uh, and yeah. I, it's a really a core kind of a core quality to, to cultivate. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I guess I believe that so much of our motivation for things that we do that are so harmful to more ourselves and others is really motivated by fear and learning to be able to sit with fear and what is the real source of fear I think is rudimentary to, to any kind of shift. And I do what I will say that things are pretty grim, but they've been grim for a long time. And there's a glass half full, you know, mm-hmm. there's more grim going on. And now is the time because it's in everyone's face, any, every human face or the dominant face, whatever you want to call it. Right. Is this is a wonderful, this is a wonderful time to do different, start over. Absolutely. And, you know, when we look at other animals, we can look to them and learn different things. And, um, you know, I spent the last summer up in the San Juans and watching the orcas. There's just different, you know, they just watching the way another species moves through life and how they adapt and just like what they're doing. I think we can apply a lot of those things to our own lives and resolve issues that are internal within us. And, you know, I think that's how we're going to strengthen our fabric as a collective because right now our fabric is very weak and you know we looking to others and not getting so caught up in the self I think is is where we reground and we need to reintegrate into our communities because you know we're much stronger together and you know mm-hmm. we, we can sit here and bounce ideas off of each other and have a conversation and other people can listen and join in and that's you know pulling up a seat at the table for everybody and saying, Hey, like you should be here. You should be a part of this conversation and taking in all perspectives. Like that's how we're going to solve our problems. And we need to lose that sense of self or like, I like to call it ego. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's a beautiful way. I, I think what you said was beautiful. And, you know, instead of reacting by contracting, <laughs> you know, respond with coming closer, even if it feels scary. Absolutely. And that's what you were just is, is that's how you revitalize. We're all connected. You know, we're not disconnected from anything. Mm-hmm. We think we're disconnected and we've learned how to feel disconnected, but we revitalize these bonds and it doesn't 
taking psychological, emotional, and, and even physical and economic risks. Absolutely. Yes. I 100% agree with that. Well, I'll get back to the trauma you wanted to ask. Me, so I kind of yes, off on I that. just think that that is so fascinating that you study trauma in animals, and I want to hear all about that. Well, I guess it, you know, it was this notion when it first came in the dialogue, it was, like I said, initially, that was not my, my, um, you know, it was not even in my mind. However, I came across, um, in the literature of this whole notion of, of trauma and the neuropsychological substrate, which again is this one brain. And so that means obviously, I mean, that's in biomedical studies. They do terrible, terrible things, Harlow's monkeys, all sorts of terrible things, uh, even just caging animals, mm-hmm. uh, it's traumatic. And so it, you know, from, from the strategic level, it was the medium that I could use to communicate to people, um, in a collective language that animals have the qualities and sensibilities that we do in those capacities. So to me, you know, what I do want to say about the trauma, and I think it's very important for human, for human uh, experience. And that is that the fundamental primal trauma is this perception and this, our, our feeling of disconnection from the rest of nature. So in, in my mind, all of the other kinds of traumas that, that are going on, you know, violence, you know, interpersonal violence, genocide, you know, human-human type of thing, that healing that really is going to be incomplete until we heal. That is to say, we rejoin, we understand that we are really rejoining, you know, fully, mindfully uh, being part of nature. And when that is, when that starts happening, that's when the true healing, I believe, is, is going to occur. Absolutely. Um, I w- and I do think that's why, that's why, for example, excuse me, that when I was talking about an elephant coming to sanctuary, you know, it's not, quote unquote, just being with other elephants um, or orcas being with other orcas. It has to do with this, their relationship with the rest of nature. <laughs> Those are all relationships. So when you take that individual and stick them in a swimming pool, like Tilikum, um, or you or you take them and put them in a box, you know, like an elephant or a lion or a tiger. That is, that is primal traumatization. Primal traumatization. Absolutely. And I think, um, you know, this is, this would probably get off topic, but that's, you know, an interesting reflection because I think that's probably what people in our prison systems experience as well. I think anyone pulled from their environment and stuck in, in a prison, whether it be physical or mental, um, that absolutely induces trauma. Um, and I think we have a lot to learn from animals. I've, you know, really resonated with the orcas here because, um, I was talking to a wildlife film director, her name is Bianca Ewan, and she had mentioned how, you know, even though the orcas are, um, out there starving and they've lost a tremendous amount of family members, and we know that, you know, their family groups are so crucial to who they are, um, they're, you know, she says she saw them out there being so acrobatic, the Southern residents. And, you know, I think we have a lot to learn from them that I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not sure if they're experiencing trauma. I personally think I would be traumatized if, you know, I was losing my home and my habitat and my family and all of that. Um, but that they're able to come back with a sort of resilience. Um, and I think that, you know, that connects back to your idea of, you know, when we are connected to nature that is where, like, when we can thrive and when we can heal. And I, you know, I think I'm making the connection that maybe they have healed their trauma or they are okay because that they have that connection to nature. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I just had a flash when you said connect because I realized that when I say connect with nature, you know, revitalize our connection. I get, I call it that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it really is when. The real healing and the what the change comes is when, like I said earlier, that when we are experiencing that and and endeavoring to achieve that, that we're we're doing it for nature. We're not doing it for us. So to, to use a kind of a different um, image, mm-hmm. you know, let's say a friendship, right? And we've had something go awry, right? I got mad at you. You got mad at me, or something, right? And so. It's so different than I, you know, if I call you up and say, okay, Erica, let's go, why don't you come on over and go have coffee with me? 
it's so different than when I go over to your house or we're together and I reach out and I hold your hands and saying, you know, I love you so much. And I don't want to see you hurt. You see what I'm saying? It's a really different yes. dynamic. Yes, absolutely. I think that's the latter. The latter is really what we're saying. We're saying that's how I look at it is, you know, please welcome me back. You know, I want to go back home. In fact, an American Indian, this was years and years ago, um, had told me a, a dream that he, it was a medicine man, a dream that he'd had. And uh, he'd had, and he was so terrible. He actually passed away shortly thereafter. And he was very disturbed by it. Um, I've written it down. I call it calling back the animals. And in the dream, you know, the, the deer came to him, the eagles came to him, the salmon came to him, the beaver came to him. All of these animals came to him to say goodbye because they were so sad they couldn't live on this planet. And, you know, I called it calling back the animals in my mind. It was like, okay, what do we, how can we, and it's apropos to the extinction. How do we call the animals back? You know, what is it? Obviously, there's some practical things, you know, you don't kill the salmon, you don't, you know, you right. don't hunt. And, and we don't, hunting should be banned. I mean, that's ridiculous. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's a thing. It is totally, um, it's, it's, it's just so terrible. And, and how, but how do we in our, in our minds and bodies, you know, how do we invite back just like that little anecdote I was telling you? How do I call back the animals? And, and they will come. And Charlie Russell, mm-hmm. as I mentioned, he, he was that kind of a person. You know, he lived with bears um, not because, I mean, he did know a lot and he had a lot of experience, but it was because he didn't really have an ego in your terminology. Mm-hmm. And he was one of them in that way. So, you know, that's what I think is in terms of the difference in the dynamic in, in that way. I'm sorry, I went off track, but that was, no, it's, wonder. it's good. This is the whole point of this is to have a conversation and, you know, we have questions, but it, the conversation goes where it's supposed to go, I think. And, you know, everybody's got a lot of thoughts and valuable things to contribute. And even if it's not on topic, like I still want to hear it. (laughs) Um, you never know what kind of thought that's going to evoke in somebody else and what kind of inspiration and, you know, it just further connects us and maybe starts another discussion. So Mm -hmm. any thought that you have, I value. Um, but But I I remember what you said about the orcas, uh, and you said you would feel traumatized. Um, I think they t- feel that this is a story that Charlie told me, and it, and it's very apropos. You know, he he would take walks, and and he saw one time all of these deer just radiating out, running out, and then they stopped after a hundred meters or so, and he, he walked along to see you know what was going on, and it was a puma, a cougar, had um, killed one of their family members, and you know was dragging the deer and eating the deer. And he was recounting this to a biologist, and he said, yeah, it was really amazing. The deer are only like 100 meters away from where the cougar is. And the biologist said to him, oh, well, that's because deer don't grieve. And he said, well, that's not true. You know? and, and the whole point is, is that they don't, have, they don't have that luxury of dissociation, which we've you know, created into an art form, right? Mm-hmm. So they have to be present. You know, no one else is Absolutely. Just, you know, can't go to the refrigerator, um, you know, and, and something or a hole up in some place and, and uh, you know, they, they're going to live. And, and certainly there are individuals because they're not homogeneous. You know, there are certain trends, but there are individuals which people, you know, have documented where they die out of grief because of their mate. You yeah. Know, whether, it's, whether, whether it's a snake or whether it's a bird or, or whoever it is. And so the point is, is that they are, and it does have an effect just because there's orcas around. It doesn't mean that what's happened to them psychologically and emotionally and then you know, socially mm-hmm. is not leaving scars. And those internal scars, if you want to you know, speak about it in terms of the convention of science, do etch themselves and they pass on to other generations. They pass on in interactions. Um, you know, they change. You know, so what happens, I always like to say that what happens on the outside happens on the inside to a large extent. Now, their resilience as such is because they're present. They don't ever leave the present in, in, in that way. And therefore, it may look like they're not traumatized. Um, they certainly mm-hmm. aren't relative to Tilikum because it's a very different set of conditions because Tilikum 
you know, couldn't live a life. <laughs> you know what I mean? He, he was right. in a swimming pool. So, so that's the, and I think, I, I think that as time goes on, you know, it's sort of like going on a vacation, you know, how, you know, when people go on a vacation or they get laid off or they quit a job or something and they'll say, Oh my God, didn't realize how stressed I was, you know? Yeah. Well, as soon as people go, then you realize the strange and stressful conditions in which you're living. Absolutely. So understanding if we can see ourselves as one of the orcas and to say, wow, look at how much, look at how one orca is, that the orcas are acting and how I'm acting. And, mm-hmm. you know, that differential right there, in my mind, is the quantity and quality of um, the unhealthiness in our life. I don't know if that makes sense. So the difference between me and an orca, it's not swimming around. It has to do in terms of how do they spend their time? What are their interactions like? You know, Absolutely. and that difference right there shows how off track we are as a species. Yes. And I think if we look at other animals, that's how we're going to solve our own problem. You know, we have so much that we need to resolve within us as a collective. And we got to first start with checking ourselves. But yes, I think, you know, reflecting on the way that animals move through life and how they perceive things is a great place to start. Um, we have, um, so throughout this podcast, uh, you know, I've encountered a lot of people that have had some kind of pessimistic views and they, you know, they don't seem to have any hope, even people in this field, which is really discouraging. Um, what do you have to say to those people or how do you, you know, do you think the Southern residents can be saved? Well, you know, it depends which hat I'm wearing. Um, honestly, I guess you can write it off as a defense mechanism or not, but I think that the real currency that we have to focus on is our consciousness, the quality of our consciousness. Now, that doesn't mean we don't do things or not do things. That's coupled with it. But I guess that's why I'm more positive, even though I have to say that I personally experience absolutely, you know, bone-penetrating grief um, when I hear about them and when I witness the brutality and the indifference toward the animals around here, like wild turkeys and deer, uh, and you name it, the animals in our sanctuary, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But... I have to say that, um, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I just know that, uh, okay, I'll tell you what I, this is it. This is what I try to do. There's a, Marlon Brand was one of my favorites. Okay. So he died and in the New York Times obituary, one of his, um, he was at an acting school. And so one of his fellow students was recounting this um, anecdote about Marlon Brando. So the teacher told all the students, acting students, okay, everyone, you're a chicken and a nuclear bomb just went off. Now act like, you know, do what a chicken would do. So everyone's running around, running around. And then all of a sudden everyone stops because they see Brando and he's in the middle of the room and he's squatting. And so the teacher says, what are you doing? And he goes, I'm laying an egg. Why should a chicken care about if a nuclear bomb went off? So, I mean, it, it to me, that's kind of it. You know, it's like yeah. the deer in the puma story. It's like the deer in the puma story. Yes, these are terrible tragedies. And yes, we need to speak out to everyone and do everything in our life, change our lives down to the minutia that will improve the ability for the orcas to stay alive. Mm-hmm. Every that we should all be committed to having nature be number one. Nature is number one. Yes. At the same time, you know, kind of be like Marlon Brando chicken, you know, that we 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 be positive. We don't have a lot of investment in outcome um that's the other thing and and i totally appreciate it and, and i'm not you know i'm not like this happy face all the time at all <laughs> right struggle. yeah but mm-hmm. i do think i do think we just have to be like them that we have yeah. to commit our lives to nature no matter what it costs almost you know we have to commit yeah. our lives and and then we just say we take what it comes you know you take it, whatever's going to happen is going to happen, which does not mean to be fatalistic. It means being present and being committed to nature, all aspects of nature, and then living like nature does, which is you just do. I don't know if that makes sense. Kind of yeah, how I no. try to slap myself in the morning and 
<laughs> yeah, no. up and say, come on. <laughs> just do what you have to do. Yeah, no, that makes sense. We just, I think we get so caught up in the future and, you know, what the next thing is and, um, just so many things that don't matter. So many things that are material and, um, you know, we need to get back to, you know, things that are physical are important, but not necessarily the things that are manufactured. There's so many things around mm-hmm. us that we can learn from, um, just from being outside and, you know, spending time talking to other people or communicating with animals and not necessarily in the sense of verbal communication, but, you know, you communicate with your dog or your cat or, you know, communicating with another animal just by taking the time to observe them. And I think you're absolutely onto something and we just need to get down to the root of our social issues and strengthen our collective, which obviously starts with the individual and then further, you know, hold ourselves accountable for waking up every day and being present and being one with the animals. And then, you know, spreading these ideas to other people as well. Um, because honestly, I, you know, I feel so privileged to have always had a passion for animals and, you know, I've always been around animals just like you and I, you know, grew up and worked in a zoo and that was very, um, important to me. You know, I spent a huge time around animals. Obviously now I know I was a kid, I was like a teenager when I was doing this, but I know better now that these are not the ideal situation, but I just feel so privileged to have spent so much time around wildlife and, you know, there's a lot that we have to learn from them. And I, you know, I struggle because there are some people that don't see the beauty and the value that they have to offer. And it's not just about the fact that they're cool to look at, you know, they have perspectives and life stories and things as well that we can learn from. And, you know, you're right. We are all connected and we've, you know, created this narrative that we're disconnected and we just need to, you're right, recenter, become present and push that on. Um, I don't know that I have any other questions, but do you have any final thoughts? No, I think it's fab- fabulous what you're doing. I think that that's, uh, no, I, I think what you're doing is fabulous and the ideas that you're talking about and, and having people talk and having the specificity, I think it's really important. I didn't spend much time about the the Southern residents. Uh, you know, I, I really can't add other than just the, you know, you know, kind of in comrades and, and being positive about it and being honest. I think there's a, a great deal of dishonesty. Uh, and, and I think it really comes down to what you're doing is, you know, you, you basically we're committed to, you're committed to the Southern residents. And I think that's how we have to be. We have to be committed to our animal friends and, and the plants and, and, and nature. Um, if I don't really have anything more, I think it's beautiful what you're doing. And I thank you. Lovely well, to thank be you. I, I think the same thing with you. I was so inspired, like reading your book and reading about you and everything. And, um, you know, I'm hoping I will at some point come to visit your, um, center where you have your animals like i definitely want to see that in person but thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me um and hopefully i'll meet you in the future okay great take care erica all right bye-bye okay great take care erica